my name is Elle, and I'm a transgender woman talking about change. And uh, I guess specifically, I'm talking about how people change. Um, it is a question as old as time. How do people go through changes? How do they make the decision to make the change? How do they actually uh, make those changes in their life? Uh, I'm recording the episode late in the day on Monday because we're making some changes to our house. Uh, I've been helping my uh, wife a little bit with some work in the bathroom, and there's going to be some changes in there, some kind of heavy-duty changes, which is really fun. Um, and uh, I am also just finishing my program, my therapy program, and one of my last assignments that I had to do was... Um, a theory of change. It was a paper uh, we had to write early on in the program two years ago, um, theory of change. And it essentially was, you know, uh, from what we had gathered and what we had learned and from our life experience and from what resonated with us, you know, what therapeutic or what theoretical models um, most resonate with us in terms of um, helping people change, helping clients change the way that they want to. Um, and we actually had to revisit that paper uh, just this week. I'm in the final week of the uh, penultimate semester of the program, and I had to write a revised version of a theory of change. And of course, you know, in terms of my uh, therapy program, my master's degree in therapy, uh, we're talking about a theory of change in a technical sense, you know, in inside a therapy room, what, um, you know, techniques and theoretical models and uh, empirical evidence is there for uh, the, the way that you like to do therapy. And, you know, for me, just to answer that question really briefly, uh, I, uh, when I'm working with couples, I really love EFCT, uh, Emotionally Focused Couples Therapy. It's built upon um, the attachment uh, model of Bowder um, and uh, it is uh, brilliant. It's wonderful. It's amazing. It's an experiential type of therapy. And so uh, a lot of the change happens in the moment. And it's uh, lots of invitations to invite couples to go sort of deeper um, within themselves. Uh, and similarly, uh, or and within themselves with each other in the room. Um, and then indiv with individual therapy, I really like this uh, type of therapy called IFS, which uh, honestly has limited uh, empirical research thus far. I mean, there are a few small studies, but uh, there's not a lot yet. Um, but a lot of folks are finding resonance with it. And um, it, again, is an experiential model where we're invited to... Um, kind of have conversations with our subconscious, you know, like we'll bring up our inner critic and have a conversation with them, or we'll have a conversation with the, the part of us that, that, you know, is doubting our abilities or the part of us that's, um, you know, feeling despondent or whatever. Um, and again, uh, very heavy on what happens in the session um, there's all sorts of stuff, um, safe, uh, creating this safe environment for people to role play and enact things and to have, uh, supported conversations in ways that they aren't necessarily able to, or don't feel confident doing in their day-to-day -day life. 
And there is some amazing thing about it, the way that these experiential techniques jar shifts for people and can help create change. There's, there's this, it's, it's like magical power somehow in, um, you know, bringing things to the surface and naming them and speaking them out loud sometimes for the first time. Um, so that's the kind of therapy that I like to do. But that question about the theory, theory of change and uh, sort of leads me to, to take a step back and to ask the question, how do people change? Which is what I was uh, wanting to talk about a little bit in this episode. How do people change? Um, there may be people in your life that you really wish would change, you know, like I hope that Ben Shapiro and Tucker, Tucker Carlson and Marjorie Green Taylor change. Um, I hope JK Rowling changes. I hope Donald Trump changes. There's lots of folks that I hope would change. Um, but I kind of have my doubts that some of them will change. Um, because the truth is that, I, I mean, at least my 40 some years on the planet has told me that people, you know, don't often change that, that the, you know, we kind of get this inertia going and, you know, we end up, we often just kind of stay in that inertia and we keep going on the same path that we're going on. And that's sort of the norm. Um, and I also feel like a lot of times, um, you know, sometimes when people do change, um, it's more of like an outer embrace of what has already been bubbling and going on in the surface. And so in other words, the change took place a long time ago, but, you know, not everyone was let in on it until a certain point in time. And so changes can sometimes look really abrupt when really they'd sort of been this gradual ongoing thing, or maybe there wasn't a change at all. Maybe the person was just faking it. Um, you know, I know in the church world, uh, a lot of times, um, the, well, maybe not a lot of times, but there were times in church world conversations where I would have, um, you know, talks with frustrated younger people who, you know, more or less talked about, you know, waiting for the people who were in the way to die, you know, well, someday, you know, they'll die off and then we'll be able to take the church forward. Um, that is pretty glib, uh, I have to admit. And yet those conversations sometimes took place. Um, obviously, uh, you know, in politics, we don't often see uh, change happen. In fact, you know, political parties, especially I feel like the GOP in particular, um, is really, really, really big and good at rallying their entrenched base. You know, they're not out there really trying to change people's minds. They're trying to stir up their base with more and more further uh, more and more extreme ideology along the way. They're not trying to change anyone. You know, I took, uh, I'm in school right now for my uh, second master's degree in my life. Uh, I already have a master's degree in leadership from uh, Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena. And uh, I remember one of the courses that I took, I remember a lot of the courses that I took, but uh, one of them in particular was sort of about evangelism and mission of the church. And uh, one of the conversations we had was about a Likert scale. It used the Likert scale as an illustration. A Likert scale is sort of like
like the scale of from zero to seven um, and you know to sort of denote where a person is on a perspective and so the illustration that I remember being used um, in class was you know on one end of that Likert scale imagine someone that really likes coke and then on the other end of that scale at a seven would be someone who really likes Pepsi and then in the middle say a three uh, would be someone who you know is ambivalent doesn't really care either way and part of the conversation that we had was that you know if someone is at a one or a seven if they're on their hard line extremes it's essentially impossible to get them to change. It just is like, it's so unlikely that we shouldn't even spend any time. And of course, this was a conversation about evangelism, something that I always uh, sucked at. Um, <laughs> evangelism being trying to convince people to join your church or your religion or whatever. Um, and so what the class taught was that it's much more useful or much more uh, it's it's a much better or you know more efficient use of energy to focus on the people that are one step in you know people that are on the edges so like say you're you're a coke person and you're trying to get a pepsi person to become a coke person you, it's better use of your time to focus on someone who's at a 6 with pepsi than someone with a seven and and in fact the goal should be to help them uh, to see if you could get them to move from a six to a five so don't do a hard sell on them just see if you can kind of talk to them a little bit about you know well maybe maybe i don't believe so so hard in how good pepsi is maybe i'll come over to the light side a little bit and you can see me tipping my hands a little bit uh coke zero for the win so, um, so I guess that's my first observation for my life is that people usually don't change <laughs> and it's really hard to get people to change. And a lot of times, even if someone really, really wants to change, they can't. Hence going to therapy or doing, I mean, I think we should normalize therapy and everyone should go to therapy, but a lot of times people see therapy as like this last ditch effort, the thing that you go to or you do when you have no other options and you have no idea what else to do, right? Um, one of the ways that I think people do actually sometimes experience change is uh, through something like uh, catharsis. So uh, catharsis in a technical sense is emotional expression, right? Um, but specifically, I think that the catharsis that comes from acknowledging a truth that's within our own selves or within our own souls or coming to a new discovery or a new sense of uh, self-awareness about something that's in our lives or something that's going on. And specifically, um, uh, embracing that. So I think that there's something powerful that happens when we're able to express those things um, to name them and to have that be witnessed by someone else in, in the context of safety. Um, that is sometimes hard to create, uh, but it's really beautiful. There, there are, there have been moments in uh, the Christian tradition at times. I mean, some those moments sometimes are fleeting, but there have been moments where people are able to go through an experience of, um, you know, whether it's confession or just 
talking about what's true for them um, authentically with other people who love and accept them for exactly as they are, that change is able to happen. I think perhaps the best model of that taking place is in the context of AA or NA, the the 12-step program. And in a lot of ways, the centerpiece of that model is people sitting around the table telling uh, stories honestly and essentially um, exposing their own souls in a context of safety. And it can be really, really intense. It can be really, really hard, especially for folks who are early on in recovery or who are just going to meetings for the first time. You know, sometimes it can take multiple tries for them to come and then be overwhelmed and then, to, you know, maybe to relapse or to stay away for a while or to come back. It can be really, really intimidating and intense and also incredibly powerful. So I think one of the ways that we go through change, and sometimes this sneaks up on us, you know, it's not something we even necessarily can control or um, manufacture or, you know, create on our own, but it's this process of of self-discovery, of dawning awareness of our own lives and sharing that out loud, emoting it out loud. Um, Another way that I, well, before we go on, of course, that has a huge overlap with the trans experience um, because uh, part of transition almost always involves um, a coming out or many coming outs. And it almost always involves a sharing of um, truth about ourselves. And it very often involves uh, cathartic conversations where emotions run really, really, really high in all directions. And, um, and so it's not surprising that trans people often experience all sorts of different ways of transforming as they go through the process of transition. Um, so uh, there you go. Uh, another way I think people change is through pain and suffering. You know, I, I think, um, you know, we could name any number of events, but there is something about pain and suffering, whether or not we would classify it as being traumatizing. Um, but there is a way in which really difficult moments, really difficult, overwhelming events change us for better or for worse, for good or for bad. Um, and, and a lot of times both, um, you know, uh, sometimes we call these, uh, experiences, you know, liminality or being in liminal space with other people often, um, uh, sometimes we might talk about them as being harrowing experiences or survival moments. Um, I know for me, uh, there have been a many of those types of experiences in my life where um, after having gone through it, and, and you know, sometimes it may take some time afterwards to sort of fully recognize it and to fully uh, realize that it took place, that the change has actually happened. Um, but I've had many of them, you know, therapy school, God is one of them. Wow. Um, I enrolled, uh, just about two years ago and life, I, I'm, I'm such a different person now. It's been so intense. I've been in school full time. I will have been in school for, uh, more than two years by the time I finished the program. 
Um, and it's been incredibly intense, just all hands on deck, um, really, really hard emotional work. Um, you know, the, the homework or the schoolwork itself um, hasn't been the most difficult per se. I do have a comprehensive exam coming up in a couple weeks, so, so talk to me in a little while. Um, but uh, it has been really, really intense. I'm very much a different person than I was when I started the program. Um, transition is uh, a lot of pain. I've talked a lot about how, how gender transition is full of pain. I went to uh, my electrolysis appointment this week and I cried through it yet again. It's really, really hard uh, on lots of levels. Um, you know, going through a divorce is... Uh, you know, a liminal experience. Um, uh, having to live through the death of someone that you love is a, an incredibly painful experience that's full of suffering. Going through recovery, I've already mentioned that, is a painful experience. Uh, you know, losing a job, going on disability, losing one's home, um, just on and on and on. There are lots of things that we go through in life that are incredibly painful, and whether or not we would uh, we would you know categorize them as trauma, traumatic or not, um, they can change us. And sometimes it takes a little while after that. Sometimes it takes maybe even years. You know, I was I had a conversation with a client um, in the last few months who shared about an experience that they went through many, many, many years ago as a child. And it was only now with them as an adult, putting back together the pieces that they were able to embrace and understand how that moment changed them. They, they hadn't fully realized it or integrated it yet, um, but it had happened. Um, so, so pain and suffering, I think, is another one that... Um, changes us. And also, like, gosh, no, like pretty much nobody chooses pain and suffering. You know, it sneaks up on us. Um, we, we step into it reluctantly. Um, it's, it's, you know, I, I feel like if, 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 if it's, if the pain and suffering is something that we're consciously choosing and that we actually kind of want, I don't know if the power to transform is necessarily there. I think that there. I think for for change to happen through that kind of suffering, and this is a little bit mystical, but I think that we have to feel ourselves falling. I think we have to sense that feeling of being out of control. You know, one of the uh, one of my favorite uh, spiritual authors is this Franciscan man named uh, Richard Rohr. He really helped me a lot, especially when I was a pastor. And he talked about you know the first half of life and the second half of life. There is a book that he. Um, a book that he wrote that's called Falling Upwards. So it has that, you know, metaphor. Um, but that, and, and he talks about how in order to get to the second half of life, in order to make that change, to, in order to make that transition, um, the only way that that happens, and it doesn't happen for everyone, but we have to go through this liminal experience where everything is out of our control and where we're not in charge and we don't know what the outcome is going to be. And we feel ourselves falling. And in some mystical, magical, uh, spiritual way, in that falling, we rise. And I don't know if you could say it any better than that. 
Um, okay, two more, really quick. <laughs> and then I have to go take a shower because I'm covered in dust and construction gunk. Um, but I think that uh, one of the ways that we change is through um, incremental practice, incremental, uh, intentional practice. Uh, I have two children. Both of them are little musicians. They practice every single day. They go to their uh, private lessons once a week. It's something that we sacrifice and prioritize for as a family. Uh, they go to their group classes once a week. And very, very slowly over time, we can see them developing those skills. And you may not be able to see it in a week or in two weeks, but you sure as hell can see it in six months. And that there is really, really tangible change that has taken place uh, through this in incremental, intentional practice. Um, you know, I, I know that we, I, that's part of why I like experiential techniques in the therapy room, because it creates an opportunity for uh, couples or individuals to practice the skills that we're teaching. So we, we practice, you know, um, making requests and saying what we need and drawing boundaries and, um, you know, uh, criticizing gently and um, we practice how to get out of conflict and how to um, apologize and how to uh, receive uh, an apology and how to forgive and all this stuff like we practice it in session and part of part of the goal is that as we practice it as we challenge our language as we reshape and reform how we think and how we talk um, to ourselves and to others we're able to do that in uh, everyday life as well. Um, I know for me, um, thinking of my spiritual transformation, um, it too was incremental. You know, I was a, a budding fundamentalist in high school. You know, I was my senior class president and I was pretending to be a boy and I was pretending to be confident and I don't know how confident I actually felt, but I was really, really, really scared. And I got up for my senior class speech and talked about how, you know, uh, money, sex, and power or drugs, money, I can't even fucking remember. Um, but how these things, I know sex and money were two of them, um, how they will destroy you. And I was just absolutely terrified. And I was I was really, really rigid, and I was really, really judgmental, and as I went through college, and as I studied, and as I took courses, and as I was taught, uh, you know, ancient Greek uh, to learn the learn how to read the Bible in, in the original ancient Greek texts, and as I learned things, I gradually uh, was able to become more open, more progressive, more curious, and you know, a, a lot of times fundamentalists will say with fear, you have to watch out for the slippery slope. And I'm not really sure how slippery it is. I would say it's more of like a, a staircase. You know, it's a lot of incremental steps. And I think that people stop at lots of places along the way. And, you know, and a lot of times they stop because they get afraid. 
Um, but I think that that incremental practice, those incremental steps, those gradual processes, um, a lot of times produce change in us. So it's not like this one cathartic moment. I mean, I think that can happen. It's not like this one crazy moment of pain and suffering, although that can happen. Um, there are times where it's incremental, deliberate, slow development over time. Um, and I guess, you know, thinking about trans people I, I, leads me to sort of think about our families and how sometimes our families, um, you know, don't show up the way that we want them to or the way that we hope that they would. And, you know, I think that sometimes... Um, change for folks, like say changing from being non-affirming to being affirming, um, I think sometimes that can happen incrementally, slowly over time. You have a kid come out to you as trans and then you start noticing and hearing trans people and you start to wonder if they might not be the boogeymen or the boogie people that you have heard from fucking Tucker Carlson about and maybe maybe there's more nuance to it than you had wanted to assume. And, and maybe over the course of years, you become more interested and open and maybe you eventually arrive at the place. Well, you know, I don't know what else they're supposed to do, but, um, I would hate to have to be in that position. And so I'm going to support him, even though I don't totally understand. And then gradually it moves forward from there to radical acceptance um, sometimes that's what change looks like. Um, and that kind of leads me to my final observation about uh, how people change, and that's uh, through exposure to the other. Um, in an earlier episode, a long time ago, uh, I talked about, well, maybe it wasn't a long time, maybe a couple months ago, I don't know. But in a previous episode, I talked about travel and traveling as a trans person. And I mentioned at the beginning of the episode how important travel has been to me um, and how it changed me. And, you know, during that time in between high school and being, you know, a married adult, that period, I traveled a lot. I went to Africa multiple times. I went to Europe multiple times. I traveled all over the place. And those experiences with travel changed me because I got to um, spend time with the other, you know? I mean, I was the other to the folks that I was visiting, and that was great for them as well, hopefully. Um, but I know for me being around them, it was incredibly, incredibly powerful. And I think there's something wild and um, you know, potentially earth shattering or shifting that can happen when we travel. Now, it doesn't happen all the time. I remember um, we had a family friend uh, one time who um, was telling us about, uh, telling my wife and I about their hunting trips. They went on these hunting trips to Africa to kill, you know, African animals. Um, and it's like kind of horrifying to me, like maybe really horrifying. Um, but what was even more horrifying was their sort of uh, racist reports about the state of 
the government systems or the goodness of the people that they were interacting with. It was like completely horrifying. Uh, just absolutely horrifying. I haven't forgotten the, the kinds of things that they said. Um, uh, and I'm not going to repeat them. They were awful, um, but incredibly racist. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't know if travel's a magic bullet. <laughs> Obviously, like for these people, uh, they were changed or maybe they were changed. Maybe they were changed in a more bigotry type direction. I don't know. But, um, you know, it's not it's not an automatic thing. But but I do think that it being exposed to the other can be really, really powerful. Um, you know, I think it's part of the power of being in a you know, metropolitan area, like obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but I live in Redlands, which is not in the city. Um, but we're an hour drive to LA, we're two hours to San Diego. And, you know, if we were to drive to LA from where I live, it is city the whole way. It's, there's no like open land or, you know, fields or <laughs> it's just houses and buildings and warehouses and neighborhoods and, on and on and on all the way right into LA. And so in a lot of ways we're we're on the skirts of or even part of the greater metropolitan area of Los Angeles. Um, and as because of that, we live amongst millions and millions and millions and millions of different sorts of people. Um, my kids and I ate dinner tonight at In N Out Burger and it was full of folks that looked different from us, you know, all different kinds of uh, races and ethnicities and uh, dialects, uh, languages being spoken. Um, there were queer people there, you know, visibly queer people, not just because I was there, um, just all sorts of different kinds of folks. And, you know, growing up in my hometown uh, that you just heard about, like, Essentially, everyone is white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, Christian, whatever, whatever the heck that, you know, like that, you know, everyone is just a white Christian. And that's great. Like, I'm a white Christian. Um, there's nothing wrong with being a white Christian. And if that's the only person that you're surrounded by, if that's the only kind of person that you have meaningful relationships with, um, you might get locked into a certain worldview or a certain way of thinking and um, and travel and interacting with the other may be a way to jar growth, which is why I think that uh, having a queer person in your home is like one of the best ways to help said unaccepting parents and family members that I mentioned before uh, to help them change. Uh, you They get up close and personal with the other, uh, with someone that they didn't realize with the other, but then when we came out, they realized, oh, well, I have no choice but to confront this and to change or not. So how do people change? Well, they don't, but they do, but they do. Um, you know, it's hard to change. Sometimes change sneaks up on us. But I do think that it's possible. Uh, and so, 
If there is someone in your life who really needs to change, I hope that you have hope, whether that person is you or someone else or both of you. Um, I hope that this gives you a little bit of hope because change is always possible and it can be a really, really beautiful thing. Um, thanks so much for listening to the show, for hanging out with me for these few minutes. I will be back uh, next week with another episode. Um, I've been listening to Julia Serrano's uh, book, All Sexed Up, which is about sexism and sexualization of people, and it is absolutely incredible. It's blowing my mind. Um, and there's part of me that is tempted to give you a book report for that, uh, because it's so wonderful, but there's also part of me that just wants to say, hey, go read her book, go buy her book, um, you know, help her to make a few dollars. She is such a gift to, uh, the trans community and is absolutely a brilliant scientist and biologist. I love, uh, reading her stuff. So, um, again, thanks for listening to the show. Oh, also, I noticed that there are, there have been a few, um, negative, um, reviews from transphobic haters. And if you haven't had a chance to drop a review in the show or drop a rating, I would really, really appreciate it. Thanks for taking that time and for liking and subscribing and sharing and doing all those things. Uh, it really, really helps to, um, you know, expand the reach of the program. So, uh, once again, my name is L, and I'm a transgender woman talking. <laughs>